Welcome, I'm your host, Greg McEwen, and I am here with you on a journey to learn so that we can make a higher contribution. Do you feel psychologically safer at work now than you did several years ago? It's an interesting question. And today I've invited perhaps the preeminent expert in the world on the subject of psychological safety to discuss that and other things with us. This is Dr. Amy Edmondson, a professor at Harvard, and the person most responsible for making the term psychological safety ubiquitous in the world after she published a paper more than 20 years ago focused on this subject. This is part one of two parts to our conversation. I knew it was going to be a good conversation because Amy is as capable as they come and the subject is so timely. But even with that, the conversation went further and deeper, more real, more raw than I expected it would. By the end of this episode, you will have new insight as to what psychological safety actually is and what it isn't, and where the threats are coming from to that psychological safety in today's workplace. Let's begin. And if you want to get more out of these episodes, learn faster and go more deeply, sign up for the One Minute Wednesday newsletter. You just go to gregmcewan.com and it's in the top right-hand corner. It's completely free to everyone. It's a resource that will help you in all of these ways. Amy Edmondson, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. 20 years ago, if you can believe it, more than 20 years ago, you defined this term, psychological safety. And one of the definitions you have identified is it's permission for candor. Can you unpack that definition and just how else you think of this essential idea? Absolutely. So think about children. They're very direct, right? They will say anything. I mean, little children, you know, certainly preschool, preformal mm-hmm. schooling. They'll say anything that comes into their head. They'll ask questions. They'll point out the spinach on your teeth, whatever, right? They'll do it. They'll <laughs> do it all. But one of the things we learn how to do starting in elementary school And certainly by the time we are working adults, it's all but second nature is to hold back, right? To wait and see, to say the things you're pretty confident will be, will earn you approval and to stay away from the things that you believe might earn you disapproval, rejection, humiliation, or worse. So it's, it's, that's what education and socialization is one of the things that education and socialization are good at, reinforcing a kind of habitual response to wait and see, to hold back. To look around, see what other people are doing. Yeah, see, you know, and especially see what the so-called important people are doing. You know, Mm. what does the boss think? What do the cool kids think, right? So that you can kind of then alter your response. Now, I'm not saying this is bad, good, immoral, or anything else. I'm just saying it's true, right? It's, It's descriptively true. And so then you say, okay, so what, right? Well, the fact is this habit will not harm your next dinner party. 
right? It will, you will have a perfectly enjoyable, lively conversation around the dinner table. And this pattern may harm your work team's performance. Because people, so this sense of permission for candor is is just largely, it's not a given, right? Again, because of the overlearning of these habitual norms that we do in school and beyond. So if that's not a given, but your team depends on sort of wild ideas to innovate, or your team depends on people's willingness to speak up quickly about a signal that something might be off to prevent failures downstream, or, you know, something untoward is going on and no one's speaking up about it, right? All of those things will come back to haunt you, right? So if you really care about your team being high-performing, agile, innovative, whatever the primary sort of aspiration you have for your team, then you need to worry about felt permission for candor. So how did you select this particular challenge in the first place? Mm -hmm. Well, I should I should probably say I didn't select it. It selected me. And, I like that. But I think a, probably a better answer is that I was passionately interested in learning. I, I don't mean sort of individual learning at school, but but organizational learning. learning. Right. Yeah. The whole idea of organizational learning caught my attention in a big way in the late eighties. I just I I met Chris Argerus and Peter Senge through some sort of corporate work I was involved with, and they came along and like and the oh, fit, and the fifth cool. discipline. The work that they were doing was not out yet. It was not out yet. Before that, you were influenced directly by their thinking and Senge's thinking. Was that what sparked it for you then? Well, that's what got me interested, you know, in this sort of abstract idea that organizations need to learn to succeed in a changing world. They need Mm -hmm. to innovate. They need to adjust. They need to do continuous improvement. The more I studied organizations, and this was sort of from the perspective of a consulting company, the more... I saw barriers to learning rather than enablers, right? There's just a lot of barriers, right? And, and okay, so now let's fast forward. But I still had this sort of perplexing, nagging worry in my head that organizations don't learn. It's too abstract to even say, does that organization learn? It's organizations, let's say, you know, General Motors, AT&T, right? What is, what is that? It's just an enormous thing. It's an enormous Mm. thing with multiple locations and thousands or hundreds of thousands of people. And so this is a long-winded way of saying it it occurred to me that teams are where the learning is, right? Because individuals, I already knew that the individuals in those organizations were very smart and capable and they saw the sort of competitive dynamic. You know, they they were as aware as I was of the shortcomings of the product services processes their companies had. But as individuals, even fairly high level individuals, they couldn't change it, right? They lacked a magic wand that sort of poof, you know, changed the organization. And that's in part, again, Mm. because organizations are big and messy and complex and there's no there there, right? So then I thought, okay, you know, the real learning, the, the way organizations learn, this is a blinding flash of the obvious, is that their teams learn. Right. And because that's where the work is. It's not individuals. If they learn, the teams learn, because, of course, as you're suggesting, right. you can have intelligent individuals and unintelligent teams. And that seems to be the gist right. of what you're directing. Yeah. At. I mean, well, you can have yeah, you can have intelligent individuals who've sized things up, but don't have a way to m- enact change. But their team right. could. And then if you think about teams, well, there's what does that mean? Well, that means the top management team is a team. 
A new product development team is a team. A factory production team is a team. And they all have very different jobs, but they all must learn. They all must learn if the company is going to thrive into the future. Well, what you're saying is you got attracted to that particular unit within the larger organization that called to you and said, that's the group that if they can learn and they can make important change within the wider organization. Go ahead. That's exactly right. So that became the thing I thought I'd look at, right? Mm-hmm. Because and anyway, it was not inconsistent with what both Chris Arduris and Peter Senge were doing and saying. It's sort of like even Peter has a chapter in the book on team learning. So I said, right. okay, I want to look at team learning. Now, team learning, by and large, and it really hardly matters what job you have, happens through conversation. I mean, action also, but very much the quality of the conversation will point us right to the quality of the learning. And and so then... In a, sense, to, convers- in a sense, conversation is the learning, right? Like that's the that's where it's yeah, happening. That's where it's happening. But sometimes it's, it, you know... I Or I, not. <laughs> I could, exactly. Some, and, and almost more often it's not, right? What is actually happening? Well, it's posturing or, you know, habitual routines or what Chris Arger has called defensive routines, which are explicitly non-learning conversations. I mean, not they're not deliberately non-learning. They're just explicitly not learning. I don't want to take us off track, but I want to go deep on that for a second. What does it look like? What is the primary observable team behavior look like when they're not learning in your experience? The primary one, that's a great question, is the ratio of advocacy to inquiry is too high. Yeah. Often, even 100%. Meaning, if you analyze the conversation, you transcribe it, analyze it, you will see statement after statement and very little genuine questions. You might see the leading question. You might occasionally see a yes-no question where the obvious answer was yes or no. But you don't see that sort of genuine question that is focused on some issue at hand is is like genuinely hoping to have my mind changed about something (laughs) or to have my understanding deepened about something. Okay, can can I push on this for a second more? So advocacy to inquiry, I totally understand what you're describing. Now, when you say you have the transcript, you analyze it, codify it, what does that look like? Is it everybody in the room is advocating or is it that one or two voices are louder and they're advocating and the rest are silent? What's the dynamic you've observed? It's it's a great question and I wish I could give you an actual empirical answer, but I can give you a, a rough sense that all of those dynamics are possible. The most common one is that you're hearing more talking, I'll just put it in quotes, the boss, the you know, mm-hmm. whoever is the highest ranking person in the room is often guilty, not because they're you know, again, often unaware, but often Mm -hmm. guilty of doing most of the talking. And from a purely scientific perspective, it's arguable that they're doing too much of the talking because they're furthest from the actual, you know, customer dynamics or technologies or what have you, right? So they should be doing talking, but they should also be doing a great deal more than they often do of listening. So one common sort of, you know, advocacy orientation is that it's too much talking by person in position of power, not enough inquiry by anyone, however, because in theory, anyone could 
disrupt it. And and so that's sort mm-hmm. of the number one, because it's like you can't learn if you're not curious and you're not expressing curiosity and then actively trying to bring in stuff that might, you know, disconfirm a prior or or might at least deepen your understanding at the very least of what of why you're right. I sometimes joke with audiences when I'm working with them and will say, look, has anyone been to a meeting where the real meeting happened after the meeting had passed? And everyone says, yes, you know, hands up as you said, yeah. as you're signaling. But somebody once sort of pushed back, not against that, but they said, who has been at a meeting where the real meeting happened before the meeting began? And that's another similar dynamic. I think the one you're describing, if you come into the meeting and the manager's already made the decision and now this is a pretense, well, what do you all think about it? But you can sense that it's already decided. There's no conversation here. It's another, seems to me, another element of this. And I call that the the sham meeting or the sham decision-making meeting. I like that. I'm really here to rubber stamp or to make myself feel great about my pre-made decision, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, you know, I thought you were going to say something else because I've, I've, I've also heard both, right? The meeting after the meeting, the meeting before the meeting. Right. And I've often heard people, I mean, I had people argue with me that there's nothing wrong with that. Like the preparatory meeting is preparatory and that's people doing their homework and the post meeting is whatever. But yes. And my answer is yes and no, right? I get Mm -hmm. it. I understand it. I, again, I'm never saying this is immoral or anything, but I'm saying that we're so used to, we're like the fish swimming around in water. We don't see the water. We are unaware Mm -hmm. of water. We're so used to those kinds of dynamics that we fail to really account for how much valuable time they consume and, you know, whether there would be, like, would it be possible to have more radical candor, as Kim Scott describes it? Or would it be possible to kind of just say it without the tiptoeing and the reading of the room? And, you know, I think, by and large, we can have more learning-oriented conversations that are more out in the open, that take less preparation and sanitizing. Less it. playing of the room and more learning in the room. Exactly. I think playing works in the industrial era, right? It's because so much certainty and continuity that those dynamics didn't get you in a whole bunch of trouble. But in the knowledge era, in the digital era, we just don't really have time and capacity for the for the playing. It seems to me, and I'm really curious as to your view on this, it seems to me that the primary dysfunction on teams is silence, a certain kind of silence. And I'm wondering whether that contradicts what you're saying, but I don't think it does. I think it's just the other side of the coin, your thoughts. That's, yeah, I mean, I only gave you one symptom or or observation. That's right. Another would be silence, especially silence by people who could reasonably be called subject matter experts. I have a case study of a case study of this, you know, where there's someone in the room who, or in the Zoom, if you will, who mm. has been, now, when they're 100% sure that what they have to say is true and valuable, they'll say it. But very few of us have 100% certainty about anything in, in our uncertainty. Especially if we have expertise. Right. Especially, exactly. The more expertise you have, the more sophisticated you're thinking, the more you know you don't know, right? So the silence of, Experts and non-experts alike is another 
very, in fact, that's the one I'm most interested in, another powerful signal of non-learning. This episode is sponsored by Shopify. Selling a little or a lot. <coughs> Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. So whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, whenever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. So sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, which is your AI-powered all-star. In my experience with every business that I have built, including this podcast, there are breakthrough moments, and those moments are often the result of finding the right partner. And I think that's a way to think about Shopify, because no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash greg, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash greg now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash greg. Can we talk more about that? You said that there were case study after case study. Can you talk about one case study? Yes, the one that comes to mind most quickly, and I realize it's getting old, but it's still powerful, is the NASA Columbia shuttle combustion upon re-entry on February 1st, 2003. This is a 16-day shuttle mission where, let's back up the 16 days, at the launch there had been a rather unfortunate shedding of foam off the solid rocket booster that unfortunately we found out later did in fact a chunk, a, a giant chunk of insulating foam hit the leading edge of the shuttle, hmm. made a hole. That hole, which was undetected, the shuttle re-entered and the, the worst possible thing happened, which was the combustion and death of everybody. So in, the, in a mission management team meeting on the eighth day of the 16-day mission, and in the eight days leading up to that, there was an engineer named Rodney Roca, and there were several of his colleagues who were worried that the, about this possibility. But I, I want to emphasize it was utterly ambiguous. In fact, more than ambiguous, it was utterly unclear. But mm. there was a grainy video. There was like a speck that you and I might think of as a sort of dust speck mm. in the video that just Rodney's gut said that could be something. And so mm. he asked for permission to kind of look into it. Now, I don't want to take up your valuable time with too much detail, but he was a little bit stymied in his quest for resources and the and the kinds of data he thought, well, the, the obvious data he wanted was to give a phone call to the Department of Defense and get imagery, you know, get get photos of the shuttle. And then you'd know yes, no, right? It wouldn't be a <laughs> wouldn't be a guessing game anymore. Anyway, he's not they kind of they're and the re they don't dismiss him because they're bad people. They're good people who say, this is our 126th shuttle. We have little foam issues all the time. They're never 
catastrophic, and that is true. They never had been before. So, but now we get to day eight. So here's the here's the story I want to tell you, which is there's a mission management team meeting. Rodney's on on the mission management team, but he's in the periphery. He's present around in the room, but again, lower status, if you will. And the MMT talks about this issue for about two minutes, and they dismiss it as a nothing, as a non-issue. In that moment, and he's quite aware, it's not like, I mean, there are moments where we're silent, but we're not kind of holding back. We're just silent. That's okay. But in that moment, it's sort of like, you know, he almost wants to say, I wouldn't dismiss it so quick. You know, he wants to say something, he wants to do something, but he cannot. And why can't he? As he later says, because she, meaning the mission management team leaders, way up here. I'm way down here, gesturing with his hands about hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's a kind of particularly dramatic moment. And I have many, many others, but that's one where someone is haunted later by the idea that they could have spoken up and changed history, right? And by the way, it's not sim- like if he had spoken up. And they had gotten the imagery. They would have seen that there was a you know, failure waiting to happen. And it would not have been easy to prevent it, but it would have been at least worth trying. And there were a couple of, there were a couple of scenarios that might have worked. But the distinctive point you're making about that moment is that he felt he should speak up. So it's not just silent people, out yeah. of people or hierarchy. Exactly. So I've asked people around the world in different organizations, you know, think of a time when you had something you thought was relevant, you know, question, concern, mistake, dissenting view, you know, you, be- I don't care. I don't need a judge to tell us whether it's true or not, but you believed it was relevant and, and, and you held back, right? I have very rarely, occasionally, but very rarely had someone not be able to think of something, right? And then, so they're, you know, they, maybe maybe if we have time, you know, we talk to our friends, we do a breakout, whatever, forget that. Now I ask, what were, and again, it's just your subjective view, but what were the consequences of your holding back? And there I get this lovely data set that ver- rarely varies much in magnitude. There is usually somewhere between three and 7% of like people really believe something consequential you know, some consequential failure, particularly safety. I do a lot in healthcare. Safety incident happened that didn't have to happen. And they feel terrible, right? That's a small, small slice. A big slice, like a third of them are, you know, we wasted time and resources, you know, that we could, I could have short-circuited, right? Like we took too long to get to the right decision or the too many side meetings or what have you, because I didn't, you know, maybe 20, 25% are, we actually made a really bad decision. You know, we launched a product we shouldn't have. You know, maybe you could probably think of your favorite candidates for that. And then a third or so say, yeah, I can't point to anything, you know, material, but I felt like a wimp. I felt bad about myself, right? And that, I think that's material in my own view, because that leads to disengagement. And I think we all want to feel we matter and we don't want to deprive people of that feeling. Well, it's a non-trivial thing, I think, for at least one reason, because arguably our deepest need is to be heard, to be understood, to be seen, and as you say, to matter. And so if you have a third of the people saying, when I didn't do it, I'm choosing not to do it, even though there are barriers that make it harder to do it, but I didn't do it when I could have done it, and I felt a certain violation of conscience, something like that. Right, it's almost like, 
it's not who I am. And yet it is, right? It's, it's sort of, it's not how I want to think of myself. I want to think of myself as someone who isn't, you know, tiptoeing around because of their bosses in the room or what have you. I don't want to over infer their thinking, but I think it is. I mean, I, you and I are agreeing on this, that there's something important about that, even though it's sort of ephemeral. It may not be as tangible of a business outcome, but it still clearly speaks to culture and it clearly speaks to the wholeness of the people in the room. They're not speaking up when they could on something that mattered to them and something is lost as a result. Right. And again, I think it's probably the case that people don't are less likely to do that when they have high levels of certainty that the thing is relevant or will win them approval. Right. (laughs) Then no problem. It's more when um, they're not sure. And from my lay observation here, I think there's more and more opportunities for us to be not sure about things because, you know, there's so much uncertainty. So what we've covered so far seems to be a definition of psychological safety plus some of the barriers for that psychological safety. Are there other barriers to psychological safety that you think, well, if we don't talk about this, we haven't really even covered what the barriers are, or do we move on to this in some other way? You know, I I think the barriers are pretty well understood by people. I mean, there's that, Mm. you know, hierarchy is a barrier, but it's not an absolute barrier, right? We can have hierarchies. It's really about how people at the higher parts of hierarchies respond, how they convey the nature of the work we do, whether they seem to be genuinely inviting the quiet voices into the mix or not. So it's so hierarchy is a risk factor, but not a determin- it's not a bad thing in its own right. It's, it's just how, how you handle it. Well, hierarchy to some extent is a necessity. You know, if you have competence, you have hierarchy, but you're saying we have to overcome that we have to overcome it because of what's at stake, right? Again, not, not from a moralistic perspective, but from a practical perspective. We have to be aware that it can get in the way. And, and so we sort of go, okay, let's figure, let's figure out how to mitigate the risks. But you said something interesting just then. I want you to just to punctuate it. You said, because of what's at stake. Can you just put in your own words, <laughs> maybe it's a summary of what we've said, or it's a different thought. What is at stake here? I mean, what's at stake for you or for me may differ. I meaning, you know, random people in random workplaces. Yes. But by and large, the categories of what's at stake for me are breakdowns, failures that can be prevented, oftentimes relating to human safety and, and, and life. Let's say you're just taking care of patients in a hospital. What's at stake, of course, is the safe, high-quality care of the patient is the outcomes. The other category of what's at stake are often is more of the opportunities that were missed. Now, there's an asymmetry here because, you know, if we fail to speak up or fail to have a high quality learning conversation and something bad happens that we can then readily recognize was preventable, we learn about it, we feel bad about it, we see it, we try to do better next time. The tricky part about the opportunity bucket is that we will quite often be unaware of, of what the innovation opportunities what we that we miss, right? They're, they're invisible. So what's at stake is, you know, maybe it's not today, someone's going to get hurt today, but what's at stake when innovation suffers because of these dynamics is that the future viability of your organization is lowered. In a sense, it's a bit dramatic way of saying it, but there's, it's like an ethical crime because you're not tapping into potential 
that could benefit you, your team, the organization, people in broader society, because we're not talking about the real issues. Right. I like that. I like how you put that because it's sort of, you know, we've gotten, we got our educations, we're given our jobs, we're, you know, we have all of this investment in us to be in any particular role in any particular work environment. And it is a little bit of an ethical crime when we don't use it. And not, again, it's not about bad intentions or moral weakness, but it's just a failure to recognize that you are here for a reason. You have a responsibility to the team, to the future. Mm, I love the idea that you have a responsibility to the future. I was having a conversation just today with a professor at Cambridge University in England, and we were talking about part of the research that I'm doing right now, which is about helping people and teams get to the heart of the issue fast and how vitally important, at least that seems to me, because from an equation point of view, you can say, if you have all of the assets of an intelligent person, capable, talented people on a team, you can have driven, engaged people. I mean, you can have lots of terrific assets, but if you multiply it by zero, it's still a zero. And that <laughs> zero, you know, to me at least seems to be if you don't address the right issue, if you're trying to solve the wrong problem, then nothing else matters. All the rest can be fully engaged, but if it's not going in the, you know, on the heart of the right problem, it all gets neutralized. I wonder how you see both your work in psychological safety, but also, of course, beyond that, all of this rich research that you've done for all of these years at HBS. Do you see a relationship between not getting to the heart of the issue and psychological safety? Absolutely. And I just, I, I mean, I, I love how you just put that. And the multiply by zero point is so powerful. In my field of, let's say, I'm, I'm a team scholar, let's say, I'm interested in teams and teamwork. The historic work kind of up until my era, I suppose, led by Richard Hackman and Joe McGrath and others was get the structures right, get the inputs right. Like we can't mm -hmm. force teamwork or engineer teamwork, but if you get the right skill set, you know, kind of a reasonably good set of resources, maybe a good team leader, whatever, then your chances of teamwork are higher, which I couldn't agree more. But the tragedy, I guess, crime yes. maybe that I see is too often you've gotten those smart people together, right? You've gotten great resources and you're multiplying by zero, you know, and why are you multiplying by zero? Because you're not actually leveraging. It's sort of like, here are the inputs, but then here's the process or the norms or the mindsets that you need to convert those inputs into outputs. And mm -hmm. I think we often think, because of maybe industrial era logic, mm -hmm. that get the inputs, we'll get the outputs. doesn't work that way, right? So yes, I think that's a very good way to put it. Like there's all of this lost potential, you know, when we don't have a way of finding the synergy that we could find if we were more candid, honest, less defensive, less holding back. Okay. Does the research show that over the last 20-ish years that people feel more psychologically safe at work, the same or less? Honestly, we don't know. But there's a lot of things we do know. There's a problem 
with that question. Not the the question's a good question, but the <laughs> problem with trying to answer the question. Trying to answer it. Yes, I understand. Over the last, let's say, seven years, particularly since Google got a lot of attention for discovering this yes. very powerful result, the definitions or conceptualizations of psychological safety have multiplied. People have expanded the domain of psychological safety to include everything <laughs> from job security to safe space. I am guaranteed that nothing you say will hurt my feelings in any way in this space, you know, trigger-free, if you will, to yes. comfortable, you know, laid back. And of course, it's partly my fault because the term, which I didn't coin, by the way, but it was in the literature. It just wasn't, hadn't gotten a lot of attention. And maybe because of this connection to learning, which so interested me. So if people have a, a fuzzy notion of what it is, then it's hard to sort of say, is it going up or down? But if I were to say scientifically, I think my best guess is up, right? That compared to when I was a young person starting out in the corporate world, there's more candor, more directness, less sort of formality. I mean, I remember doing work at Sears when people were calling each other Mr., right? That just doesn't happen today. You're saying that there has been, in your observation, an improvement in the informality of conversations, allowing, at least in theory, people who are more junior exactly. to feel more equal, to be able to speak up more because there isn't such a reinforced set of rituals reminding you that, you know, know your place. You're not the one to have the opinion, to have a point of view right now. Yes. And in fact, I love that word ritual, right? Because that is an, indeed another one of those sort of non-learning signs or signals in, in teams when they're, when you notice that they're doing this dance now, and now they're doing that dance, right? Whether it's, mm. you know, there are rituals of reassurance, that you can observe, right? Where it's like, we're right about this, right? Yep, we're right about this. And so you're absolutely right to point out that there isn't a 100% relationship between formality and candor, not at all. I mean, you can see high candor in a military setting, for example, when right. it's well, well led. But by and large, just human behavior, more formality can be at least a risk factor, right? It sort of mm -hmm. implies a certain get your ducks in a row before you open your mouth. And, and politeness, by the way, the whole essence of politeness, the people who studied that for a living, what it's about is face saving, right? It's, it's you know, I, I'll mm -hmm. come to you because you're superior to me. So I come to you with a sort of indirect, maybe have you thought about it this way when I really want to say that won't work. Right? <laughs> but because you're senior to me, I ease in and it's all about face saving well face saving is anathema to learning what's one idea in today's conversation that stood out to you what is one thing you can do differently to increase the psychological safety for you and the people around you who is one person that you can have this conversation with so that you can be able to produce more psychological safety in others if you haven't already done it, sign up for my newsletter, The One Minute Wednesday. It comes out, of course, every Wednesday. It takes just a minute to read, but it can help you to reinforce these ideas, help them to go deeper and keep you on track so that you can make a higher contribution. For the first five people who write a review of this episode on Apple Podcasts, you will receive free access to the Essentialism Academy. Just go to gregmcewan.com forward slash podcast promo. 
Thank you, really thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.